Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mean O'Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. All right, all right, all right, everybody. Once again, black again, black like I never left. It's your host, the one and only Carl Payne. Welcome to another wonderful episode of Black Arm of the Law. Today's guest comes to us by way of Queens, New York. He's a Queens, New York native. He is a retired NYPD executive. He's also a best-selling author. His book is entitled Once a Cop, The Street, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man. Please welcome to today's show... Corey Pugis. Yeah, well, again, thanks for having me on, on the show. I know it's been a delay, but we're here now, right? Let's work it out. We're here. We're here. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I'm just a kid that was born and raised in Queens, New York. Family of six, five sisters and myself. Uh, my father left in the third grade. After the third grade, things started going down here. We lost the house. You know, we started having roaches, mice, eating mayonnaise sandwiches, Cereal with carnation milk, you know, the whole nine. Uh, we was on mayonnaise sandwich. Not a lot of people know about mayonnaise sandwiches, man. Not a lot. And that government cheese, Carl. And the government well, yeah, cheese. Yeah, where you had to take a knife, and if Ooh. you were to cut it, you either had to heat the knife up or knife up or stand on top of that mug. Like, <laughs> you could take a damn, like, like, like a, a hatchet. <laughs> exactly. Yes, sir. And you wouldn't go to the bathroom for about three days. That's right. Them grilled cheese sandwiches, you'd be clogged up. And it was the best grilled cheese sandwiches. It was the best ever. Especially when they get them, you make them a little brown. You got to let them get a little brown, not just the cheese. You got to brown them. (laughs) A lot of cats don't know about that way of life. Like, But, you know, I feel like this, man. Before you continue, I just feel like, you know, obviously the things that we go through, um, you know, the, the hardships or the struggles or even the adversities, or the obstacles, if you will, that's what shapes and molds us, man. Exactly. You know that those are the things that 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 you know define your character. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. but but yeah, I grew up in New York too. So you just took me back down memory lane. That's all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you took me you took me back. Being on welfare, you know, having funny money. I always tell people when I'm speaking to kids, like we had food stamps. I remember vividly the ten dollar bill was green. The green. $5 bill was purple. The yep. $1 bill was brown. You know, oh. and every time I would, my mom would send me to the store, I'd get up to the cash register and get all this stuff. And one of my friends would walk in and I'd be like, fuck that. I'm, I, I don't want it no more. Right. Because I was embarrassed with the stigma. But, you know, unbeknownst to me, he was coming in with food stamps. Yeah. <laughs> and his moms were selling food stamps. Exactly. Well, you didn't know the yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So you know, at around the age of thirteen, I started, you know, getting into the streets, and I started selling um, you know, marijuana 
you know, weed, whatever you want to call it, cannabis, and that is fancy name. But, uh, you know, we started, me and my man, Sean Dew, we started selling some weed, and then we graduated to selling some loose cocaine, masculine tabs, and then around 84, like in the 84, 85, this wonder drug crack came out, and we started selling crack, and we just started making, like, so much money. It was, but it was decimating our community. You know, we contributed to, you know, the plight in our community. You know, it's crazy. You know, I'm starring in this Netflix Netflix show called Crack right now, which you need to check out, Carl. It's crazy. It details. It's something Stanley Nelson is the producer, award winner. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. But it's really capturing that era and it's just it's just crazy. It's trending like five worldwide. And um yeah, we was just out there, man. Then I eventually started working for one of the most violent drug conglomerates on the East Coast for sure, called the Supreme Team. And um, carrying guns, shooting people, being shot at, doing all this crazy stuff as a teenager. And um, in the 12th grade, I had two kids. You know, in December, my son was born, Corey Jr. And in June, my um, my daughter was born, Natasha. And then 30 days later, my mom's passed away. So it was like all of this stuff. I'm heavy in the streets. I got two kids. My mom passed away. I'm like... I'm stressed out over this whole drug situation because I really don't want to do it. You know, we all we grew up in church. You know, I went to church, yeah. Sunday school, Bible school, the whole nine. But I knew everything that I was doing was wrong. But I wasn't trying to be John Gotti or Supreme. I was just trying to get some sneaker money, get some girls, get some jewelry. That's all I was trying to do. But right. then it morphed. Like, you can't just be in there and say, no, this all I want to do is get some sneaker money. It don't work like that because the peer pressure and it just morphs into something. Now you got guns and there's gunplay and all kind of stuff. But I was able to, you know, October 18th, 1987, what, just a few months out of getting out of um, high school, I was able to finagle myself and get into the get into the U.S. Army. So I got into the Army for three years and eight months. I came What's back. That? All my friends was dead or jail. But the crazy thing about October 18th is February 88, the feds took down the Supreme Team. That's where they killed the cop. Eddie yeah. Byrne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just a few months away from possibly being dead or in jail. For definitely in jail because they took the entire team down. And it changed the whole drug game in America by killing that cop. So let's talk about that time frame for a second. Because, I mean, I, I obviously grew up in the same era. Um, but, you know, I was in Harlem during right. that time. That's where I used to buy my drugs at one foot one thirty fifth in Amsterdam. Right. I used to be up. So so I was definitely in in that era and, and in that world. I, I was very familiar, you know, um, with with a lot of the known associates, whether it be Alpo or Rich or A Z and, and the Dominicans and the Colombians over there on Amsterdam and up the hill and whatnot. Right. So I was definitely uh I mean because it's just it was just a known fact if you grew up in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. so you 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 knew who the players were. You knew where to be, when not to be, um, and, and so forth. So yeah, I definitely uh, am very familiar with that time. Now, so do you think? Do you think that it was? Because um, I think that was definitely a transitional t period, like you said, around eighty-seven, mm -hmm. right? A lot of us were just getting out of high school and trying to figure out what we were going to do. You know, even though, you know, so some of us, like myself, I went to Howard, I went down to D.C., and I made a choice to do that. And then that's when my life changed, you know what I mean? Um, but I was already going down to D.C. a lot. 
Right. <laughs> so it was. It only made sense to continue to do that. So, um, you know, was it was it something specific for you? that made you decide to join the army? You know what I mean? Was it, was it like, I need to get away. I need to break from this. Was it a different opportunity? You know what I'm saying? What, what was the defining moment that said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this for a minute. I'm going to try this. I'm going to go check this out. Yeah. Well, it was a couple of things, you know, you know, I have this, you know, award-winning book called once a cop to get a chance. So y'all just send me an email, you know, I could shoot you a copy of the book. Um, you know, I write about how, I was ordered to murder somebody. So it was like, remember, Carl, I was there for sneakers. Yeah, <laughs> I, right. sneakers. I got you. I got you. So, but when the head of the Supreme team called to come and get you off the block and say, yo, come with me, gave me a nine millimeter, said, I'm going to take you over here. We're going to go to this club and I'm going to point somebody out so you're going to have to kill them. For your audience, they got to read the book to figure out, you know, yeah, yeah. what happened with that. Obviously, I'm here right now, right? Mm -hmm. Um. And the other thing was December 12th, 1986, when Corey Jr. was born. It was like, you know, what kind of hero am I be for this kid? And for your audience, if you're in the streets, like heavy in the streets, like I was in the streets, you get a three-year run, it's old. You're like 90 years old. If You you know, you're not dead or in jail, especially back then. Not today. Today's a little dead. That, that money is never coming to hit in the streets like it was when I was out there. It was pretty much an open-air market when we was out there. But the homicide rate was... Like last year, I think New York City had like 430 homicides. But when we was out there, it was like 22, 2300 homicides. Wow. It was it was a big, big difference. And so I knew the only way I could get out of here was not to just like tell my friends, y'all don't want to sell drugs no more and still try to hang out with my friends that got $5,000 in their pocket. And yeah, I don't have a reason. <laughs> you know, so it was like if I remove myself from the entire environment, I could recreate myself. I could actually now be Corey instead of this boo life, you know, street persona that, you know, people was calling me. That was my name in the streets, life. Mm -hmm. So let's get rid of him. Go here. I go to the military. I never forget. I made like $628 a month, which I was making in an hour or, or even less than that. And, but I was the happiest soldier in the U.S. Army because no longer I was worried about my girlfriend set me up. My homeboy set me up. The police set me up. You know, it was it was a crackhead setting you up. You didn't have to look, you know, selling drugs. That's who I was successful as a cop. I would always play the the wall in the cop. So he said, why you play the wall? You know, as a drug dealer, you only could look left, right, and in front. You can't come behind me. You know, I didn't learn that from being a cop. I learned that from survival on the street. Exactly. Even to this day, you know, I'm at a party. I'm never in the middle of the room. I'm right. always against the wall, left, right, front. I have to always see what's coming around me. You know, so I was just tired of living. You know, those those are dog years in the street called. People think it's nice. You get money, you get jewelry. Right. It's messed up. Yeah. You're very jumpy. You're nervous. We wasn't even really getting sleep, you know, because it's like mm -hmm. Puffy said, you know, I never forget Puffy said, yo, I don't get much sleep because every time I'm sleeping, somebody else making money. And that's the drug dealer mentality. Like, yo, I can't yeah. go to sleep. I got to keep getting this money. I got to keep getting this money. Yeah. So it was just a monkey. It was an elephant off my back. And it was like, again, remember, Carl, I wasn't trying to be top dog. I'm just trying to get a little money. But it's you got to understand when crack first hit, we was like getting all this money. We didn't even really, we didn't even have guns. I didn't have a gun for like six, eight months. We was just selling drugs. It was just so much money coming. But then gun started coming into it. And it's so dangerous. You know, wow. 
It's the, right. we can't even get an apartment up there on 135th in Amsterdam now. Right. Oh, and I was going by crack there with all dilapidated buildings. Everything was abandoned. Now it's like 2.5 million just to get, um, you know, one of the buildings up there. So it was, it was so dangerous. It was like, I got to get, I, so I sold drugs from like 14 to 18. It was like, I had a good run. I got locked up once, mm-hmm. uh, but I never was convicted. That's one of the number one questions people always ask. How do you become a cop? I never was convicted of a crime. Right. And so it was like, yo, the G.O.D. gave you so many chances, man. Now's the light. Let's get out of here. You got to cherish it. You got to cherish it. You got you to run with that when you, get, when you recognize that you're getting a second chance or you're getting another mm-hmm. chance or whatever. Right. Um, so just, and we're going to move on. I just want to stay right here for one second. Um, so backing up just a tad, growing, uh, were you, um, did you ever have any run-ins with 50 Cent or, or guys like that from, you know, from during that time? Right. Well, you got the boo-boo, as I affectionately call him, you know. Oh, right, the boo-boo, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we used to go to the same barbershop. You know, I, was, I hustled on that side of town, so my man Mike Nice had Phase International, so I know him through that, but he's a little younger than me, so he wasn't out, he, yeah. Wasn't, yeah. he wasn't there when, like, Supreme Team was at its height. He was a little younger. He's a little younger than me. Mm-hmm. But I know him from, you know, Hanging around in the barbershop on 134 and got brewed the whole south side. Right. He was, he was a gangster gang. He had everybody shook. Not me. I mean, like all those young kids out there. He would just yeah. go on the block and rob everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he's definitely one of the cats that is not making up his story. <laughs> he's definitely not making up his story. I promise you that. <laughs> well, anybody gets shot eight or nine times and still come out talking shit, Kind of probably going to believe they had a little bit of case inside. Well, he he'll tell you. He you know he said it changes your your perception on things. It changes you because he's like you know. I mean, obviously, there's a lot. You know, whether it's yourself or someone else next to you. Anytime you're dealing with uh, uh, death in in such a way, it's like you definitely look at your own mortality a little differently. Mm -hmm. You know, and you 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 either bounce back on some fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, now I know what's real, and can nothing phase me the same. So, I didn't even get, I didn't even get shot at like that, and was like, yo, I got to change, right? You know. So tell me about your experience in the army. Talk to me about that. <clears throat> if you remember, call we from New York City. I'm not used to eating bugs. I'm not used to sleeping in the ground outside in the woods for like 30, 40 days. We used to be on these re- what we call like reforges. We out there for like 30 days and digging foxholes. And I'm in a foxhole at like two in the morning and the sergeant come tap me on my helmet and be like, enemy 300 meters to the left. And it's like 10 below zero. And I'm like, this is a fucking game. There's no enemy over there. I don't want to play this anymore. <laughs> I freaking hated it. I, I swear I hated it, but yo, the, the hustler in me call was like, yo, this is what I had to do to change my life. Right. I knew that I wasn't re-enlisted. It was, right. that's why I did three years. And you notice I said three years and eight months. I got caught up in Iraq one. Mm. The first Iraq war, my enlistment was just getting ready to be over and Bush one extended us. Mm-hmm. That's why I got eight months, the extra eight months, but it was a good so, experience. So you, 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 
So you were deployed to Iraq? No. Okay. You know, we was on notice. Like, gotcha. But that that war, we, we I think it was like thirty days or less. We we beat them real quick. That was a quick war. But I I hated. I'm a city boy. I I didn't like it. Yo. The military is really comprised of of people from lower social economic areas, but like in the country, not from like New York City. It was just eye opening. <laughs> it was a shock. So let me tell you a story real quick, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was in, um, I want to say, I want to say junior high school. Mm -hmm. I was in junior high school and I, I so for social studies class. So they, they used to call it social studies back then, right? Mm -hmm. For social studies class, I was in, they, I was a part of a group called the Ramblers. And they took us on field trips just like that <laughs> and took us. And I remember one time. They took me to Staten Island, somewhere, somewhere in Staten Island, and we were supposed to sleep in the woods. But I just so happened to remember the area that we were in because my aunt, my aunt and her husband lived in Staten Island. You know, they they lived in a nice house. I never forget one time we went grocery shopping. Remember you talking about grocery shopping? We went grocery shopping, and he spent four hundred and fifty dollars on groceries, and I thought, oh my god, he's rich. He's rich. <laughs> Never seen nobody spend that much money on groceries. Right. And I just remembered where we were. And I'll never forget, every night we were out there for the whole weekend, I would sneak off and go to my aunt's house. She looked like right across the freeway. I was like, I'm not sleeping in the woods. <laughs> and I took three friends with me, man. And she was cooking us steak and eggs. And she was hooking us up. But we would always leave and be back at campsite. Right. By like five in the morning, you know what I'm right. saying? But right, right, wow. But yo, we was out there like playing with, like you said, playing with. But but I grew up a little bit in the south too, so I kind of I was able to, you know, to to. I tell you that, man. It was it was culture shot. Uh, it, it was <laughs> I, it was bad. Like my first few days in the woods, I was like, I'm not eating. Like what kind of food? I'm not eating the food. We had to pour waters water on the food, you know, was meals ready to eat, this evaporated. So I said, I'm not eating this shit. After three days, it was like, I got it. I eat anything. I eat it. And then you had to learn to eat it. But I developed some really good relationships. I got two or three good friends from the military. But I ran out of there. It's good for whoever want to go, but I ain't had no aspirations on that. So now talk to me about how you became a part of the force. Yeah, so while in high school, there was this cop that was assigned, because I went to Andrew Jackson High School, one of the worst <laughs> schools, yep. you know, in New York City. So there was a cop assigned to the school. So it was a young brother. Now, actually, he was a middle-aged man, and he would always talk to me. Now, he knew I was in streets. I was in school. Well, you know, <laughs> this is a picture with me in Andrew Jackson High School as a senior. I got a big rope chain medallion on. I know I got a bunch of money and I definitely got a gun on me on that day because, you know, we wasn't running around the streets that time without no guns. And he would talk to me, but he knew he saw something in me. He was like, yo, you ain't really this bad kid. He said, yo, you should become a cop. It's a good job. You get a house, two cars, white picket fence, take care of your family. So it always stuck in the back of my head. Remember, I was just trying to get sneakers. I really, and it started getting more and more dangerous. I mean, the Supreme Team, people was dying. People was getting killed. I come out for my shift to work. Be like, yo, where's such and such? Like, yo, he got murdered. It's like, damn. So it was like my mind, and then I had the two kids. So it was like, 
what kind of hero I'm going to be for these kids. I'm going to be a hero, go to jail, come home, they throw me a barbecue, be like, yo, he's home. Or I'm going to be dead or, you know, dead. So it's like, I got to sneak out. But it ain't cool telling people you're going to the army while you're selling drugs. So when I went to that recruiter, I told him, I was like, yo, how long is it going to take to get me off these streets? To give me like three months. And so once I got that date, I just sold drugs every day up until October 17th, 87. And I left on the 18th. <laughs> I didn't tell nobody. I didn't tell my girlfriend. I didn't tell nobody until the last day. I just was like, I'm out of here tomorrow. Out of here. Because I didn't want nothing to mess up this transition. I didn't want anybody. But you wasn't thinking about that yourself while you was out there still risking it. No, I wasn't. But again, you know, I had those two kids, so I had to hustle to the last day. Because I'm like, Tina in Brooklyn is on my fucking neck. I need some pampers, some milk. Teresa, so I have two different girls, but Teresa right. in Queens is going crazy about my daughter. So it was like, let me just change my life and see what happens. Let me roll the dice. Right, right, right. Got you. So And so while in the Army, I came home and took the police test. So right. I knew it would be like a two or three year investigation period. And as fate would have it, when I got out six months later, I went into the police academy. So I only had two jobs. Well, I had three jobs in my life. I worked for the Supreme Team, the police department, and the Army. That was it. And I always tell people Supreme Team was a job because we worked shifts. I worked midnight to 8 in the morning, and I got paid on Fridays. It was crazy. Like, like Jay-Z, 50 Cent. Like, that's why I have, like, respect for these guys. Like, when you out in these streets doing all of this crazy stuff, you worrying about everybody trying to kill you. Everything is a hustle. You know, Hollywood is a hustle. Everything is a hustle. Yep. So if you know how to hustle, you can hustle whatever. You know, like, I, you know, I'm finishing hustling books. I'm trying to hustle some Hollywood shit now. You know what I'm saying? Everything is a hustle. And as um, long as you ain't worrying about nobody coming after you, it's just a sigh of relief. Now you can just hustle. You can hustle hard. Listen, Wall Street is a hustle. It's a, yeah. You know, like, you know, it, trust me, a lot of these cats are more alike than you think, you know? That's why mm-hmm. when they sit down with a Warren Buffett, they understand each other. Exactly. <laughs> you know? He's one of the biggest gangsters ever. <laughs> it's on a different level. It's mm-hmm. just another level. Um, okay, so now you joined the force, right? What year was this? I joined the force um, January 1992. 92. Now, okay. I remember 92. Okay. So around 90. Did, now, did, did you experience a lot of racism or any, you know, were, were there some challenges with regards to, uh, you know, once you joined? Oh, yeah. I mean, you understand, policing started with slave patrols. And when I joined, it was just really like a male white dominated, you know, probably 90 percent, 90 to 95 percent male white run organization. Those yeah. numbers are probably a little lower now, just a little, not too much. But, um, yeah, it's a heavy, heavy relation, um, a heavy tone of racism. Especially in, in New York. Especially in New York. Everywhere. It's Listen, I've been all over the country. All of these police departments are racist. I'm telling you, it is what it is. And it has to be rooted out. You know, in my opinion, it needs to be an atomic bomb to blow up the whole criminal justice system and start it off. Because you can't fix something that started off with slavery and you're still using the same you know, you're still using the same things. Like you gotta exactly. like blow it all the way up and build it up. So yeah, I would, you know, I would get assignments. Like <laughs> they would give me crazy assignments that no one else 
with one of the cops to look being like, damn, what did Corey do to the fucking soul? Like, like, give me an example. Give me an example. Put me on all the dead bodies. If it's a dead body, Pegues, you got the DOA. I'm like, all right. But they didn't know I was a hustler. So what I would do, they said, you got the DOA. I'd be like, all right, Sarge, no problem. Let me get my books. I would get my books to study while I was on the DOA. And this old white cop told, showed me any smell you want to get rid of, you take some coffee grinds and burn them in the pot. It'll take any smell away. And so I would go to whoever was a dead body in the house. I would stop at this bodega, get some coffee grinds. Right. Pull them in the pot, burn it, and it would take the smell away. And I would just sit there and read and read. What they was doing was helping me take their job, and they didn't realize it. So I started volunteering now for, like, the hospitalized prisoners, the DOAs. I would know before I get the roll call, it was a DOA. And I would, hey, Sarge, I take the dead body. And they start looking at me like, this fucking guy's crazy. Because nobody want to sit on the dead body. Right. I was like, no, nah, I got it. Don't worry about it. Hospitalized prisoner? The emotionally disturbed person? I'll take it. So I started, that was my way to hustle because I was like, I'll go there. Now I could study for eight hours on job time. Right, right. And I'm a sergeant with five and a half years. Right. So kind of quit. And, and no one knew. No one even knew I was studying. But I would get, you know, like I remember one time I wrote in my book about one time I was, I came in for lunch. I had like a year and a half on the job. Came in, got in the lunchroom, this old timer, but like 25 years ago with a big handle mustache, big Irish guy, like six foot five, came and just turned the TV while I was sitting there watching. And I was like, are you fucking serious? I took the table, I threw the table, <laughs> I threw the table off, I jumped on me and this motherfucker's about to fight. And all the cops ran up to the break us up. I was like, look, I understand this whole veteran thing, like rookies, whatever. I get the hazing, but you're going to haze me respectfully. You right. know, you're going to come in here and be respectful with the look, rookie. You're not in control of the TV until you get a little more time. You just don't come and turn the TV. So, you know, I came in. I was policing unusual. I'm coming in with a Diddy Bob. I'm coming in with jewelry. I got a tattoo on my neck. I got cornrows in my head. I was just, I was a little different, and I was hip-hop. So I'm like the first generation of... You was like the Allen Iverson. Exactly. You was Allen Iverson of the department. Exactly. They didn't, know, they didn't really know what to do. <laughs> got it. Got it, got it, got it. Uh, so, all right. So, I mean, we, like I said, we talk about so, this. Hold on, call, check this out. I would go to jobs one time. I had a white partner. And we would get go to the house. It was be a domestic, whatever it is. And we call the radio Central. Central will come over. I'm at the house knocking on the door. And she'll come over and say, Sector Adam, we just got a call back. They said there's a black guy in uniform knocking at the door, acting like he's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, Central, let them know we have those jobs too, okay? Right, <laughs> Open it's the me. That was over by Rikers Island. So Rikers Island, you, me and you know Rikers Island, but what, mm -hmm. I don't know if, what you don't know is this very affluent neighborhood over there. That's like half a million dollar homes over there. Well, back then, they probably cost more. So... Yeah, I'm telling you, man, it was more than one time that I went to like a white person's house and they would call and say there's a black guy impersonating a police officer and it, was you. and it was you and it was me so i had to answer like i had to pick the ready up and be like yeah let her know that it's a black cop and we have those jobs too so open the door <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. hilarious so now 
How now? How long was it before you got promoted? Five and a half years. But I don't know if you remember. In '93, I was there for the first resurrection in New in um United States. Was you? Do you remember when the cops took over City Hall? No, t- no, uh, uh, vaguely, vaguely. Refresh our memory yeah. about that. Yeah. So in 1993, there was a bunch of white cops from the New York City Police Department overtook City Hall. Rudy Giuliani was running for mayor. They was protesting against Dinkins. They had signs with nooses on them, calling them the N-word, all kind of crazy. I was out there working. You know, I was supposed to be working, um, supposed to police the supposed to police the police and obviously I couldn't police all of these crazy drunk white guys and if you google this New York Times wrote a big expose about it um so it was the first resurrection so when I saw this resurrection last year I was like wow this is a repeat of what happened in 1993 now in 1993 did they allow that to happen too or was they it? didn't allow, well, the police department frowned upon it, but, you know, they didn't really, it was no big fallout. It was actually a black chief of department, four-star chief, uh, David Scott, who was in charge at that time, and they totally disrespected him. Right. Yeah, it was bad. And But the common denominator of that resurrection was Rudy was there inciting a riot and over here. Right. So what does that tell you? And Rudy, Rudy is it was your man's one of your man's friends. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell you? Yeah, Rudy is. <laughs> he's been. I mean, well, if you're from New York, then you know that Rudy, like black and brown people, then like Rudy from the from the jump. So yeah, he came in and definitely shook things up. Yeah. When, when he came around, so so tell me about your rise within the department. Yeah, so my rise was pretty pretty quick. You know, it was just, you gotta understand, police and manuals are written on a, a sixth grade level. There's no big words in there like pseudophilicolitis barbe, which is a long ass word for shaving bumps. You know, so I knew just basic English, if I read it and retained it, the only thing is like studying for a bar exam. It's a bunch of information. But if you know how to study, you could retain the information. And, you know, every year, I studied like seven years straight. So after I made sergeant, Three years later, I made lieutenant. Then three years after that, I made I made captain like 13 years on the job. And after the captain, there's no more exams. It's all discretionary promotions. And, you know, by that time, Ray Kelly had taken a, a liking to me. He saw he saw my work ethic. But the thing is, like, for 21 years, you know, I had to hold this inside that, you know, I had to suffer life about me. And I couldn't talk about it. So I had to play the game or what I call hustle. I had to just hustle the police department just to get what I wanted to get. And it worked out pretty. It worked out pretty good. So, tell me about the incident in was it nineteen ninety nine? Which one? Uh, well, you spoke to the judge. Oh no, that was in. That's before. That was before I went to the army when right. I got locked up. Right. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I got locked up. And so, you know, you have to go to different court appearances. And so after like the third appearance, I had already enlisted into the military. So I told a lawyer, I said, listen, because I can't keep coming to these court appearances. Like, I'm getting kind of scared. Like, yo, this is getting ready to blow everything. I said, tell the judge that I'm enlisted into the military and I'm leaving October 18th. And so this was around August because I, I had to go get a disposition for the police department, so I know. 
And he told the judge that, you know, my client is enlisted in the military. He has, he's going to change his life. You'll never see him again. And the judge pretty much looked at me and said, you really enlisted in the military? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving October 18th. And he looked at me and said, I'm going to give you another chance. But if I see you in my courtroom again, you're going to jail. And I said, you'll never see me again. And he closed and sealed the case. Of course, he was like, whatever, right? Yeah, the judge was really nice. The judge was like, okay, I'm going to give you a second chance. And I better not see you in my courtroom again. So it worked out perfectly for me. I ran out of that courtroom. I told the judge, you'll never see me again. And I just kept my nose clean until October 18. Now, was there, was there, let's go back to the force, right? Was there a specific incident or were there any cases that stand out in your mind uh, that were either difficult cases that you may have worked or, <clears throat> excuse me, um, pardon me. So this is a two-part question. Were there any cases that you may have worked that stands out in your mind because it just resonates as, you know, like a significant case of some sort, right? Um, where you may have had to make a difficult decision or where even the racism played a part in it. Um, because again, I, I hear these stories all the time about different police officers, uh, of black police officers and black law enforcement who happen to team up with white law enforcement or they work in neighborhoods that obviously the white guy didn't grow up in mm -hmm. or because this guy is a superior or something happens where now you're dealing with the blue wall, if you will, right? So mm -hmm. I basically want you to talk to me a little bit about when did you first become aware of the blue wall and how you dealt with that? Oh, well, you learn about the blue wall immediately, like in a police academy. It's like they teach you this whole it's us against them mentality, which is, is crazy because it's really not us against them. The police work for the people. But I mean, there's so many different instances where I had, you know, like my partner, I can remember my partner, we would be driving down the street and he would be like, yo, Let's stop those guys right there. And I'd be like, what's the reason of suspicion? You got something? What's going on? He's like, yo, look how they dress. And I'd be like, Brian, did you see me come to work today? Did you see me with the Yankee hat back? I have my rope chain on and my pants sag a little bit. That's not reasonable suspicion to question, stop questioning, and or frisk somebody. You know, so it, it's almost like a teaching moment. If you a conscious black cop, you're going to give a teaching moment to them to the ones that don't know how the hell to deal with the um, the citizens in the community. So was there ever a, an incident of some sort? Like, I want to hear about... A, a, oh, well, my first arrest, one of my first arrests, uh, I was on a foot post, and I locked this kid up, and I needed a car to transport him back to the precinct. And then two white guys came up in a patrol car, he was cuffed. I had him sitting on the sidewalk. I had to go on the other side of the street to write in my memo book for, for whatever reason. Now, what, what race was this guy that you were talking about? He was black. He was black. Okay. He was black okay. in the story of Queens on Steinway Street. And um, all of a sudden, I hear him screaming. Like, they're kicking him. He's screaming. I thought the kid was Houdini. I thought he got his fucking cuffs. So go over there. He's still in his cuffs. I'm coming over there to help him. He's in his cuffs. I'm like, yo, what the fuck is going on here? So the sergeant got to the scene and immediately now, this is a move like young cops ain't really doing that. So I told the sergeant immediately what happened. Uh, this was abusive authority. You know, I'm going to call 212-741-8401. I still know the number to internal affairs. 
I said, I'm not going to tolerate this. So, like, early on in my career, you know, I witnessed something like that and immediately, like, put my stamp down. Like, I'm not going to be part of this blue wall. We're not going to do this. I'm not going to do it. We're here to protect and serve, and that's what I'm going to do. So once you do that, you start getting a reputation. Like, people don't want to do stuff in front of you, which is good. But the other flip side of that is people kind of shy away from you. They don't want to talk to you. But it wasn't about talking. I ain't want them friends anyway. I sell my same friends that I used to sell drugs with to this day. So I didn't want no new friends. I just wanted to take care of my family. And I wanted to always do the right thing. Right. So, you know, with promotions, it's just like I put in for this elite unit, this plain clothes unit with two years on the job. Me and my partner, Brian, the same guy, we came out the same day, like a week later. We was at roll call. They said, Brian, you got 20 minutes to go over to Randall's Island for your um your interview for street crime. And then they called me. Pegues gave me a letter and said, you need at least three years to apply to street crime. So I'm like, what? This shit don't even make sense. He got two years. I got two years, but I have to wait three years. And I remember being in the locker room and Brian after roll call, and he almost had tears in his eyes. And he's like, I'm sorry. I was like, Brian, you ain't got nothing to do with this. Man. Get off was this. Brian was Brian white? Yeah, he was white. Irish. Yeah. Mm. You know, but he was cool. He's not cool today, but he was cool back then. And, um, you know, it is what it is. So I caught this racism like early on from, you know, in the street watching how, you know, I always coined that phrase that in black and brown communities, the police hunt and in white communities, they protect and serve. I know that for a fact because I worked in different segments of the community in 21 years around the city of New York. And it's a known fact that they hunt in black and brown communities. Just little stuff like somebody smoking marijuana outside in the white community. They'd be like, look, you got to put that out. Put that out right now. Black communities, there's no tolerance. Like everybody's going but I to remember, see. But I remember back in our black com or black communities, you know, if you were smoking marijuana or if you had a beer or something like that, because the officer was from the neighborhood too, like we, where, where we grew up, we knew our officers, and they would do that. They would do that. They would say, "Hey, put that out, or throw that away, or whatever." Because you know, who wants to deal with the paperwork? And it's it's nothing crazy, right? Because everybody knows everybody, and it was like so. That's how they handle things, and and like you said, once Giuliani came around, that's when things really changed with regards to that. Changed because Bratton brought that broken windows theory to policing. Like if you leave one broken window in the building, then other broke people will start breaking other um, windows. So what happened was it's like if they're doing lower level crimes, they got to be doing high level crimes. So we'll stop every single person that's moving supposedly on reasonable suspicion or probable cause, but they was just doing jump outs. So if you jump out on in Harlem on 125th Street, mm -hmm. if you toss 100 people against the wall, you're bound to get a gun out of somebody, but you pissed off 99 people. Exactly. They didn't care about that. It was just numbers driven, numbers driven, numbers driven. Let's keep the decrease in crime. Because before Bratton... And Giuliani came into the policing with this broken windows theories and this whole Comstack computer statistics, analyzing crime, plotting it on maps. It was just a reactive department in the 80s where it was like if somebody got killed, the cops showed up, put the yellow tape. But Branton and them came, it was like somebody got killed. Let's find out who his five last girlfriends are, his six main homeboys are. Let's anticipate where the next killing is going to be. And that's what really changed the whole dynamic. All right, let's switch gears real quick. Rapid fire. 
news cycle. So the former Brooklyn Center Police Officer Kimberly Potter charged with second degree manslaughter in the Dante Wright case. Talk to me about that. Yeah, uh, training officer. She's a training officer. She didn't mistakenly mistake that. Or she did. It was a mistake. But if you really analyze the video, she pulled her gun out. When he jumped back in the car, her gun was out. Her gun was out. So I don't understand how she screamed taser when taser, you're trained to have the taser on your non-shooting side so that you can reach across your body to grab it. Your strong side, where your strong hand is, your weapon is right there. But if you analyze that video, as soon as he jumped in the car, she got that gun out. And then she screamed, taser, taser, taser. For the life of me, I don't understand why her and two other cops couldn't jump in that car and get this guy who looks like he's 120 pounds soaking wet. He should have never even went back in the car. She, um, right. it, it probably was a mistake. I'm not buying it, but she has right. to pay for the mistake that she did. So, right. So, but let me let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, and I, and I apologize for cutting you off. You put it on the opposite side of your body, opposite side of your body, for that reason alone, right? Exactly. Dominant hand versus right. And if you've got, if you're a vet, right? How you know, twenty five years or whatever you want to call it. At some, at, at some point, you're a vet. Right. You've taken your belt on and off. You've gone to practice. You've gone. You have. You had to maintain your train. So. If the weight of a gun mm -hmm. and your gun, all of that, it's like it's is totally different from a taser. It feels different in your hand. Mm -hmm. Plus so the motion. What happens is this. One, I don't think they should have tasers on cops' bodies because you asking them, call in the training environment. It's me mm -hmm. and you going to training. Right. There's no freaking threat. You know it's all play play. You could do this all day. Now right. you add in somebody jumping into a car, he or she's going for a gun, your partner's fighting, you're nervous, you're blacked out, you're sweating, your heart is racing. You can't, training can't recreate stress. You understand? So right. now this lady's in a stressful situation. She's, she panicked. She totally panicked and she has to pay for that. But she debunks that whole issue where we keep saying cops need more training. How much training she need? You just said it, 26 years. How much training you need? She right. got 26 years of training, and she still killed somebody. It's because, not the training. Because you, cause when you look at all of these different killers, what's the common denominator? Right. It's, right. It's not training. It's Because I, I just wanted to understand where she felt threatened. She didn't feel. It's impossible for her to feel threatened. When you look at the video, the guy had two guys had their hands on him. I don't even know how they got. He broke free from them. And he was and he running. The gun. He but was that's because I've been saying all along, you shouldn't be a cop unless you got punched in the face. If you've never been punched in the face, you shouldn't be a cop. These cops don't want to fight. You see this. They're going right to their guns. Like, you can't shoot your way out of this policing. Like, I remember being knocked out by a perp. Like, punch, cold cock me right in my face, me and my partner. We didn't even think to get our guns to shoot the guy. I was like, yo, I'm going to kill him. Like, kill him, like, with my hands. Like, right. it's getting ready to go down. We never pulled our gun up. Right. But today, all they're doing is reaching because they never they never had a fight in their life. And they're scared to death. And you give them this power, this gun, and it, it, it's, it's really sad. But you look at Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. You look at this girl, Potter. He had 18 years. She got 26 years. They both was training officers. Yeah. How do you have these people training the rookies? Right. So what are your thoughts on this George Floyd 
or the George Floyd effect? Yeah, the George Floyd effect is real. Um, I'm not overly confident that he will be convicted because you don't know. You only have to convince one. It's only one juror that got a doubt in their mind. So we don't know, Carl, if there's a cop level on that jury. Right. We don't know that. So, but my fear is if this guy is not convicted of this crime, it's gonna, all hell is going to break loose. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. But I'm not overly confident. Like I told Mark Lamont Hill a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I'm not overly confident. We've seen this movie, right? We saw mm-hmm. it. We've seen Rodney King. We've seen right. Eric Garner. We've seen these things before. Right. The only difference in this one is the nine minutes and 29 seconds. And so that's where I have a little bit of hope um, that he might be convicted because we actually literally watched a human take the life out of his his body. Right. And it's kind of ridiculous to even have to go through a trial. You know, that's, exactly. my, that's my opinion. And if he really wanted to prove something, and if he really wanted to prove something, we could just put our knee on his neck for nine minutes. And if he's still alive... <laughs> Exactly. Then then we can proceed with the trial. Exactly. Uh, what are your thoughts on the pandemic? COVID, cases, death, vaccine, all of the above. Oh, man, it hit my family pretty hard. I lost my aunt. Uh, my wife was in the hospital for 12 days. We thought we was going to lose her. I had it for eight days. It's, it's been ugly. It's been ugly. And I just wish, I, I really wish that we had a different president when this thing happened. Right. I do believe if we had a different president, we wouldn't have over a half million people killed in America. My condolences for your family as well. Thank you. So, you know, it's a touchy subject. You know, it's it was, it's been bad, man. I lost so many friends to this dreadful disease, man. I mean, this sickness, but, um, and people still think it's a game, man. I, I don't, I don't know, like they can't count. It's not a game. It's not a game. And you got new variants and now, So when you, you said it hit you, it hit you pretty hard as well? Yeah. I was locked in for eight days in the bedroom, couldn't see the kids, had to look through the glasses, the wave at them and stuff. You know. It was bad. And I really, really, really thought that uh you know, my wife was gonna get it was the situation where you drop them off at the hospital and they just walk in into death pretty much. You couldn't go in. Mm. You couldn't call. You couldn't do anything. It was just like... What kind of treatments did they give them when they were there at the hospital? What kind of treatments were they given? Oh, oxygen, you know, meds. But she, she was sick. They wanted to give her that, what they call, cocktail that Trump was taking. Mm. It was like, we give you this cocktail. She was like, I'm not taking that damn cocktail. Right. I'm not doing it. And I'm glad she didn't take it, because that's probably why she's here, to be with Yeah, yeah so... Listen, man, it's it's crazy because, uh, you know, you're right. A lot of people don't take it seriously, you know. Um, why do you think it hit New York as hard as it did? I mean, New York City is the most popular. We got 8 million people in the naked city, you know. That's just New York City, not even the surrounding suburbs. And it's condensed. So when you have so many people in such small areas... And you have something that spread so so fast, it was bound to hit New York hard. You know, yeah. the big cities, it was bound to hit the big cities hard. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't ready, wasn't prepared for that, mm-hmm. how to deal with that. Um, 
So what are your thoughts on the vaccines now and the different uh, uh, vaccines? You know, the Johnson Johnson situation that just came out, um, you know, what do you, you know, what are your thoughts, what are your thoughts just in general on that? I mean, aside from the fact that obviously it, it has affected you and your family personally. Yeah, I think that people should line up. You know, if you, I, I personally, I think if you have an underlying condition, it's almost like a no brainer. You should do it. Um, I don't have any underlying conditions. I haven't taken it. I'm still online. I wait till like 250 million Americans take it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want 10 years from now to be on two in the morning. They said, if you took Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, you getting headaches, right. you know, body aches and all this. You lost so your you, left you letting eye. That first, you letting that first wave go. Right. I'm not I'm not jumping in the first wave. It's the new iPhone. The iPhone just came out, and you like, "Mm, it don't have a camera. I'm going to wait. Exactly. You know what I'm saying, Carl? And and another thing for me is I had it. So, you know, what do I have to lose? I'm I'm sitting back. I'm still wearing my mask. I'm masked up every day, staying away from crowds. But I just don't believe everything that the government tells us. You got to think about this. Think about this. AIDS cancer, all of these things we can't find cures for for decades. And right. then we found a cure for the second deadliest disease in like 30 right. days. You got to do this, second death. You got to do this when you say second <laughs> deadliest. Because, you know, TB killed over 14 million people last year. See? <laughs> just I'm just throwing those numbers out there. Right. And has been consistently doing its thing for a long they time. Cure it, but they can't find a cure. So but this one here, they just found it like, bam. I, I don't know. I'm not really. Yeah, I'm in so, line. All right. What do you think about the recent voter laws in Georgia and the things that have happened down in Georgia with, you know, the the voter laws and the MLB pulling out, stuff like that, how politics is crossing into sports now? Well, listen, we all know, like, you got to hit people with in their pockets. That's the only way people really listen. When revenue dries up, people start listening. That's how you make change. So you got the MLB jumping out. Um, I see Will Smith took his new movie. He took it out. He's going to Louisiana with his movie now. They was going to shoot in like 20 days. They mm-hmm. took, they pulled out. You got to hit them where their pockets hurt. Pepsi already made a statement. I don't know if they're going to move their plant, you know, because the plant is in, in um, Georgia. But that's the only way you make people listen when they start seeing revenue dry up. Right. Right. Um, And the sad part about that, though, you know, is, you know, Tyler Perry has one of the largest studios, if not the largest studio down here. Right. And, you know, here's a black man who is making a difference in this area, but he's probably going to be one of the ones suffering. I I don't want to put that out there, I'm saying, but he would. Obviously be affected by things like that. Right. Yeah. You know, because, he, you know, Hollywood had been. When they come to Georgia, they, they, you know, this is Georgia was the is it was becoming, if not becoming the Mecca of or the Hollywood of the East, so to speak, um, because of all the tax incentives and just, you know, uh, mainly because of the tax incentives. So a lot of films get shot in Georgia. A lot of TV shows get shot in Georgia, you know, from Fast and the Furious to Marvel, you name it. Right. So I definitely know that things like that will will have a huge effect. Um, yeah, so let's hope they get that together. Uh, police reform. What are your thoughts on that? What does that mean to you? 
Police reform means <clears throat> not not defunding the police. I hate that term somebody coined defund the police because you say defund, like most people looking at defund meaning ab abolish policing. And I'm saying let's restructure or re reimagine what policing looks like. Like for me in a perfect world, police would just really respond to the seven major crimes. Rape, robbery, homicides, you know, shootings, like real crimes. No mm -hmm. more uh, emotionally disturbed persons or somebody displaying a psychological deficiency. We send, we send cops to these jobs and every time a cop keeps shooting people because they're not equipped to deal with it, Carl. You gotta understand, cops go to the academy, they get firearms training, driver's training, dealing with emotionally disturbed, dealing with druggies. They're masters of everything, but not really mastering one thing. So if you look in Oregon, right, they got this program called Cahoots, C-A-H-O-O-T-S. They've been doing it for over 25 years. Whenever there's a call for emotionally disturbed person, they send counselors. And ironically, in 25 years, nobody's been shot by the police because the police are not there. Leave the guns out of it. You got trained professionals that get master degrees, PhDs that deal with people with um, emotionally um, tendencies, you, but we're sending cops there. Now, obviously a cop need to be there if somebody's running around with a gun and breaking up stuff, but other than that, you need them to be talked down. So you need trained professionals. Cops can't do it. I don't know how many people we got to kill before they say, stop sending cops to these jobs. Also, demilitarization of the police department. You know, like when Mike Brown got killed, they had tanks running through St. Louis. Like, this is an urban, we're not in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. police department is spending all of this money on MP5s and all of these tanks and toys. We don't need that. And you know, the war on drugs is the most important place where we can defund and take money from because we've been doing the war on drugs since '79, since the Reagan era. It don't work. I mean, the only way you can help a druggie is three ways: treatment, counseling, and education. Well, well, I mean, you know, I personally think it's a joke. I think it's a, a huge joke because, you know, the war on drugs, if it doesn't fit whatever their so-called agenda is mm -hmm. or they create whatever they, the agenda is from the Contras to Oliver North, to, you know, they create whatever the, the so-called war on drugs is. I mean, you know, when it starts affecting them and in their backyard and in their home, you know, then it then it's a then it's an epidemic. And, and, now, and now people need help versus they were criminals. So all the people that was doing the same thing, all the black people and black and brown people that got locked up, all the best CEOs, marketing geniuses that are locked up for selling marijuana mm -hmm. that is now legal. Right. You know, it's like, so now that it's in your house, it's an epidemic. Exactly. And these, and these people need help. Right. And that's where we have to, there's so much money we could take away to, to, to help with the low socioeconomic areas. We always talk about schooling, education, potholes, infrastructure. Let's have police take all of this money. Like New York City, um, the mayor took a billion dollars off the budget in the NYPD last year because of this whole Black Lives Matter movement and everything. Defund the police. He took a million dollars to give to different programs around the city. And he did that in the blink of an eye. The biggest budget in any municipality is the police budget. And they just, you know, think about this. In the last 25 years, crime has steadily gone down, but in the last 25 years, police budgets have steadily gone up. Does that make sense? Right. It doesn't even make sense. <laughs> you Say can't it even see Say it again for everybody to hear. Say it <laughs> one more time. Tell you, police, Crime has gone down significantly over the last 25 years, but police budgets have ballooned over the last 25 years. 
It's it, and there's no correlation between the ballooning of the budgets and the decrease in crime because the decrease in crime a lot of it has to do with the civilian sector wanting more for themselves. You know, we were young. Our parents was like, "Get a city job and you made it." Now we're telling our kids to go get a PhD. You know, crack is gone, so nobody's doing crack no more for the most part. You know what I'm saying? The drug epidemic, except for Uncle Charlie, <laughs> exactly. who refuses to be a quitter. <laughs> exactly. So you can take so much money from these police budgets and reimagine it. You know, I look at Camden, New Jersey. Camden, New Jersey Police Department was one of the worst in the country. Like seven years ago, you know what they did in Camden? They just got rid of the entire police department. What they did to start a new one, they started a new, instead of calling it Camden Police, it was like Camden City Police, whatever it was. And they told all these cops, the 300 cops that was in Camden Police, you got to reapply to this new police department. And they opened it up. It's a powerful union and everything. They hired maybe a hundred, a little less than a hundred of the original people. And they got a whole new police force. And it's like a model police department in the country now. I heard about that because it was, yeah. was weren't they the ones that didn't have one single uh, that was uh, new last new, last new, week. New, okay okay yeah no with no police shooting right in twenty twenty yeah that's amazing I mean that's still an accomplishment within itself you know and actually that's the you're the first person that I've had on the show that actually has had an idea or or, or you know obviously from you know taking a page out of Camden's book that actually sounds like a great idea. Yeah, able to pull that off because now you have to, you know, and and that's been the whole thing, right? Just the whole vetting process, like you said, and then creating departments to where you don't send a police officer to do the job of a psychiatrist or or, or, or therapist. You don't send somebody who has no training and no background within that area to to handle those type of things. I think another thing is having people police neighborhoods that they come from or make them live in neighborhoods that they have to actually police. Well, I'm an advocate for that, but my my position on residency requirement is called, and I'm telling you from 21 years of being a cop, I think it should be a five-year mandatory residency requirement. Five years. Right. And after five years, if you want to move to Long Island and get you a nice house, fine. But for those five years, your kid's going to go to those same schools yeah. that the people you locking up with. You're going yeah. to have to go to the same supermarket, same movie theater. You yep. know, so now you're going to start feeling and sleeping and eating the community. You'll have a better understanding of the poli- the people in which you police. I had cops that um, I was a commander in Brooklyn. They lived at Exit 68 on the summer's day. They lived in Long Island. They lived an hour and a half away, so they would come into Brooklyn and cause freaking chaos and go back, you know, yeah. 78 miles. Nobody's never going to see them. But right. if you live in Bed-Stuy, you live in Harlem, work in Harlem, mm-hmm. it's a different world game. You're not going to have on your shoulder. And you, and you have a different understanding. You have a def- definitely a different viewpoint, all of the above, man. And, and I'm devote- also pushing this, the um, Police Standby Act that I'm telling everybody. If you're standing, if you're standing by... Why some a cop is committing a crime and you don't do anything, automatic termination. No suspension. No, you know, like the George Floyd thing. Everybody terminated so, immediately. So talk to me a little bit more about that because I will be with you with that. Yeah. So I'm thinking we should have a, a national and a federal level. We should have a police standby, uh, standby act where if you're culpable, you're standing we can see you on video because we have video everywhere now and a cop is doing something illegal and you don't intervene to stop that cop. 
you're culpable 100 yeah. percent yeah you should be terminated and i'm saying we can't have no like suspension for 30 days because you, you have to send a message it has to reverberate through the policing culture that this won't be tolerated if you see somebody doing something wrong immediately you have to involve yourself and if you don't it's not the job for you mcdonald's is always hiring always because always. <laughs> no. they can't work for chick-fil-a because they do a very extensive background check <laughs> all right let's let's bring this thing to a close my man uh talk to us a little bit about your book and what you're doing now yeah, thanks, man. Again, thanks for having me. You know, I got my book called uh, Once a Cop, The Street, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man. People can get it anywhere. You know, Barnes & Nobles, Amazon, it's everywhere. And, you know, you can follow me. My my, my website is um, CoreyPegues.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y-P-E-G-U-E-S. And all my social media handles are there. I just finished a second book called, I'm going to make myself a superhero. It's called If I Was a Superhero. I'm talking in an age group of five to eight-year-old kids. Uh, you know, I'm trying to talk to them about some police encounters on a light basis to just help them understand on how to in, um, deal with police citizens' encounters for the most part. I like it. I like it. I like it. Uh, definitely, man. I'm definitely a, a huge fan. Um you know, I like what you've done. I like what you've made of yourself and your life, um, how you've turned your life around and, and you found your purpose. Uh, uh, you know, you used your gift and, you know, some of the tools, obviously, that you learned in the streets coming up to apply to uh, um, the department and, you know, your journey. I'm definitely going to keep up with you. And and uh, I definitely want to be a part of this whole uh, standby law. Yeah. Standby act. I'm definitely going to follow up with you on that for sure, for sure. And, and you know, <clears throat> I got this major Hollywood showrunner, man. We just did a treatment, man, for the the book, man. You better, Listen, you better jump on, call. You better jump on, man. I'm not gonna miss the train. Don't worry. I'm not <laughs> gonna miss. I'm not gonna miss the train, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your journey with us, and 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 shedding a little bit more light, uh, so that we can continue to bridge the gap between law enforcement and the black and the brown community, man, and come up with ways to work together so that we can not only heal, but move forward. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly how I put it. Bridge the gap between the law enforcement and black and brown community. Because most people say bridge the gap between the community and police. It's not the community because white people don't have problems. Asians don't have problems. None of these other communities have problems with the police. And you hit it right in the nose. Bridge the gap between the black and brown community. Thank you for joining us. Corey Pegues. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right, man. Thank you for joining us, Corey. And thank everyone else out there listening for joining us. Once again, if you'd like to follow us. No, not if you'd like to. Follow us. Follow us on Instagram at BLK Arm of the Law. And follow us on Facebook at Black Arm of the Law. Don't miss any of the episodes. If you miss any, go back and listen to them all. Catch up. Tell a friend. Like. Share. All of the above. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.